0: Welcome to Post-Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot, grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation recorded in November of 2020, I speak with Krista Heiser. Krista is a PhD uh, professor at the University of Hawaii in composition and rhetoric. And her passion is taking sustainability across the curriculum. In fact, she's the director of the University of Hawaii System Center for sustainability across the curriculum. She loves the uh, quote from David Orr that students deserve an education relevant to the future that they will inherit. I know Krista because we're a part of a Gaia discussion group and she reads voraciously and it's just brilliant. And we had fun in this conversation. Here you go. Well, Christy, it is a delight to see you. You look gorgeous uh, on this election day. We're recording this on November 3rd of uh, 2020. And what an interesting, strange, wonderful, contracting, crazy, you know, collapsing world we live in. And I'm sure we'll go there in our conversation. But Aaron, anyway, just wanted to welcome you uh, to this series and to say that why I invited you is because I was just so impressed with the Guyanism group that were a part of the book study and and conversation. Um, there were a number of times in that conversation, those conversations that you just said stuff that really impressed me. And and I read aloud to Connie and she was like, wow, who is this woman? Um, and then of course you've read some of the things that I recommended in some of my other programs. And so uh, anyway, it's, it's uh it's a joy to have somebody who's really in the education world um, and who brings a synthetic mind where you enter, you know, you you bring a lot of stuff together. So anyway, great to have you here and I look forward to having this conversation. Mahalo.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: So one of the things that I've been doing uh, in most of these conversations at the start is because, you know, most people will not be familiar with you and your work and what you're known for and what you're passionate about. So uh, I'd like to just invite you to just take some time and don't be bashful. I mean, really just share What it is that you are uh, most proud of, uh, what do you do, what are you passionate about, and what you're particularly concerned about. So it's sort of like a bio, but a little bit more personal than a bio, but not the in-depth story, uh, which I'll get to in a little bit. But sort of just an introduction uh, to uh, entice anybody who watches the first few minutes of these and decides, well, yeah, I'll keep watching this one.
1: Um, well, what I'm most excited about right now is uh, the blog that I started writing, inspired greatly by Eric Asadorian and his Guyanism blog. Um, and and once I started writing, I realized that I, I really had a lot to say, focused on faculty in higher education. Yes. Uh, So the blog is a field notes blog associated with a research study that I'm doing where I do interviews uh, like this one Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, with faculty and talk with them about how they're teaching climate change and related issues. How are they teaching this post-doom conversation? And that's really what I've been obsessed with since about um, 2003.
0: Wow. Wow. yeah, so you, were, you were ahead of the game on a lot of us. I mean, I didn't wake up to climate to, to the I mean, in terms of the seriousness of climate and then abrupt climate change and then overshoot and everything else until like 2000 late 2012.
1: Well, I came into it through um, higher education and sustainability. Yes, um, We'll talk more about that story. But um, what what's interesting about the blog is that it really is a place for me where a lot of these things are coming together and I write things that I didn't even know I was really thinking. Um, as you mentioned, I read voraciously. I'm a, I'm a speed reader. I'm a very good reader. I love reading. I'm obsessed with reading. I read everything. Um, so a lot of that goes in there And then it comes out in these blog pieces. And I don't know where it's going or what it contributes to, but I feel like it goes somewhere. It feels exciting to me when I when I write it. So um, that tells me that it's going in a, a good direction. Yeah, so, if it
0: lights you up, then it's likely to resonate with others. How does somebody find your blog? If somebody's watching or listening to this, where do they find it?
1: Oh, the blog is on medium and it's called Teaching Climate Change in Higher Education. So you can go medium, teaching climate change in higher education. I actually put it together as a publication. Um, So you can see all the posts. I've done 27 interviews. And um, um, yeah, it's been really great. Um, Before that, or I write that from my position with the University of Hawaii System. So I work with the System Office for Sustainability Mm -hmm. um, and My role is to help faculty integrate sustainability and climate change. So I came into the post-Doom conversation through higher ed and sustainability.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm curious. uh, One of the questions I've been enjoying asking folks is what language you tend to use for these interesting times um, I'm using obviously for this series, post doom and sometimes post gloom as well. But what, what language do you find that uh, resonant for you? And do you find yourself using to describe these times?
1: When I first heard you use the term post doom, I was like, that's it, <laughs> that's exactly it. And the first time I wrote that, um, I wrote a post called uh, Pure Math and the Post Doom University. I was like, that's it, the post-BOOM university, you know? What what can we do with the tremendous assets of higher education, you know? The buildings, the research laboratories, the the land assets, and the faculty assets. There is, for better or worse, the, the pinnacle of Western scientific knowledge lives in the university and all the knowledge of the humanities. And, you know, sometimes I think people forget what really happens in a college classroom and how amazing some of these, some of these people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what does a post-doom university look like? How do we, how do we preserve and r- shift all those resources to address this accelerating climate predicament. So back to your question about language, Um, I've been saying climate predicament more than crisis lately in order to convey, in order to slow down. This is a marathon, not a sprint. (laughs) Um, So I like climate predicament, Um, David Orr, introduce the term planetary emergency mm-hmm. i liked that uh, climate crisis uh, i was a little wary of uh, mainly from talking to folks in the community here in hawaii and you know crisis indigenous communities have been in crisis for a long time exactly so um, i feel a little a little wary about that term yeah yeah but i love post doom yeah
0: okay that's great thanks yeah i mean one of the things that just brought a huge smile to my face and i read it aloud to connie uh is one of our earlier email exchanges, one of our first email exchanges where you mentioned uh, that you had uh you know watched s- several of my you know i've got three videos as you know that are part of this post doom primer or post doom collapse and adaptation primer um And that you mentioned that your boyfriend, who's Hawaiian, said, wow, he gets it. And he's a white guy. (laughs) I was just really a treat to hear. (laughs) And that you then also went on to read some of the things that, you know, I had recommended John Michael Greer and uh, William Catton and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So anything that you want to say about sort of who have been the people that have been most informative in terms of your worldview or most helpful or inspiring, that sort of thing? Mentors, anything you want to say about that?
1: I thought about this a little bit. Um, early early books, early mentors. Um, there's a, a, a faculty member here. His name's Chip Fletcher. And Chip is a, um, he's a climatologist. He's a coastal geographer. And he started giving a lot of talks, kind of like our Al Gore. Mm-hmm, and yeah. for a while, I... I was a little obsessed with his talks and I would follow him around kind of, you know, like a groupie. Was and this
0: in asked, the early 2000s? When was this?
1: N- no, this was more like, this was more like 2014. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I was really analyzing his communications mm-hmm. and um, the, the effect it had on the audience, you know, so I was really watching the audience and watching the, the shock and the numbness that I would see in the in the in the audience, mm-hmm. and so uh, I was thinking about him as a teacher and how how to convey this message most effectively, especially when your audience is 20 years old. Yeah. You know, it's really different exactly. if you're um, you know 55 or 60 giving these talks, and and your audience is 18 or 19 or 20. Right. Um, So I started sort of following Chip around and and talking to him about how to facilitate some (laughs) follow-up from his Mm -hmm. conversations uh, so people could really grab the information. I've studied the brain a lot. Uh, The book, Don't Even Think About It. Um, Our brains are not wired for climate change. Um, Really started to unlock for me how complex this is as as a teaching Um, topic. Mm -hmm. So I had had an opportunity, one of the first moments um, I had when I, one of the first times I talked to Chip personally, Mm -hmm. we'd been taken over to UH Hilo by the president of the university system. Mm -hmm. And he wanted the Hokulea people. Hokulea was, of course, our traditional navigation um, canoe that sailed around the world. Um, with a message of aloha aina and greeting indigenous peoples in every port and you know it was amazing and inspiring Mm -hmm. and the president wanted hokulea people and stem people and sustainability people he said you know you're all coming and telling me the same kind of thing but you're not working together so you guys need to kind of get together So um, after that meeting at UH Hilo on the shuttle back to the airport, I sat next to Chip Fletcher Mm -hmm. and I said, I said, Chip, you know, tell me the real deal. What is it that you don't say in in these talks? or when you talk to the press, like, you know, what's it really like to be you?
0: Right. That's a great question.
1: (laughs) And he said, I said, I said, what should, what should I do? Just tell me the truth. And he said, why don't you grab a six pack of beer and go to the beach and try to enjoy the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, the, I mean, yeah. The, that he was going around giving these talks and that's how he really feels inside yes. the predicament of that. Yes. Uh, so chip
0: that, that's part of what motivated me to do this series this post-doom series is precisely that i wanted people who really got the big picture including the scariest of the stuff mm-hmm. have done the emotional work whatever they needed to do to come through to that place of waking up each day excited still to be alive and to make whatever difference they can make and trust the things that are out of our control mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah and um you know, the network that you bring together in those conversations, like, you know, it's different nodes of a a giant planetary externalized cognitive network. And I think it's very, very helpful to bring these things together. Okay. I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, My grandfather had a farm. My father grew up on a farm. left the farm became successful um i was sort of the first in my family to really get into higher education and experience the way that education can you know kind of create a divide um in a family mm-hmm. are, I, you the old, are
0: you the oldest middle youngest where are you in the birth order
1: i'm an only child
0: only child okay
1: child. um i i went to college at the university of iowa where I don't recall learning anything anything about climate change. Yeah. Right. So I was sure. an English major. Um,
0: now, what year was this?
1: Uh, I graduated from college in 1992. OK. Yeah. And um, promptly headed to San Francisco to expand my horizons, <laughs> um, which I loved living in San Francisco. Um, I was, I still knew nothing about the environment or climate change. It was the height really of the AIDS crisis.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, sure.
1: So I was very influenced by, and I lived in the Castro and I was, I was really moved by the impact on the community, you know, Um, man with the lesions and Mm -hmm. it, it was, um, a very, it was really intense and also very moving to see the community in the Castro, to, to really live in their response. And I didn't really know anything about AIDS, HIV, either. Mm-hmm. You know, I was quite naive when I moved to San Francisco. Um, so there was that. And then I worked at a publishing company. It was an editor, or I wanted to be an editor. And... Through that company, I started working with uh, homeless adults. So, and I just liked that so much more than being an editor. (laughs) I didn't like being in a cubicle. I loved being with these homeless people and they had mental illness and they had drug addictions and they had HIV AIDS and I just got along with them. It was crazy. I was like 22 and teaching these GED classes in homeless shelters. And I did that for seven or eight years uh, before I went back to get my master's degree at San Francisco State. So I I really came into the the social side of Mm -hmm. sustainability Mm -hmm. and literacy activism. I taught for Project Read and I worked with like adults who couldn't read.
0: Well, the social, the social side of unsustainability
1: too. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, and then, so it's interesting. I, I don't always tell this story, but I will because it's election day today. Um, it was actually the Bush Gore election uh, that, or, or theft, as I would call it, pushed me over the edge. I was becoming increasingly anti corporate. Yes, um, the the climate at the time was just everybody was driving SUVs. Yep. I got in an altercation with um, a neighbor who drove an Escalade and he actually ended up coming. I, I left him a nasty note about his you know, stupid car and he actually ended up coming up the stairs to um, our apartment. And my husband at the time, he, he punched him in the face. The guy came up and attacked my husband, we had to go to the emergency room, broke his nose, fell down the stairs. Well, crazy. It was a crazy time. And they were talking about projecting a Coca-Cola advertisement onto the moon. And, you know, it was just nuts. Right, and then the election happened and I voted for Ralph Nader. And I was like, yes, that was awesome because I was so certain. I was so certain. And, um, yeah. Then I woke up the next morning and it was like, what happened? Yeah. So I'm not even that freaked out today because <laughs> I've been there, done that, you know? And, right. you know, it sounds silly to me now, 20 years later. Um, but the, we just wanted out of that culture yeah. and the, only thing I could muster up to do was to move to Hawaii which like sounds so stupid right now but I really did want to not be in that consumer corporate capitalist culture yes so so in some ways um, what I wanted in Hawaii was to be um, around a diverse different type of culture did I just your husband
0: didn't have- make that move with you
1: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. yeah and he's still here he teaches actually at the law school okay um so so we moved to hawaii and then shortly after that 2002 after after 9 11 after the towers um that maybe that spring of 2002 um I still knew nothing about climate crisis, even up to Mm 9-11, even mm -hmm. that election. Um, And so I was walking in my neighborhood here. I live in this beautiful valley called Manoa. I still live here. And I was out for a walk by myself. Mm -hmm. And I was walking over this little stream um, on a footbridge that doesn't exist there anymore. It was taken out in a giant flood rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Oh gosh, I remember Biblical that. flood, yes, biblical exactly. flood. Yep. Yeah, so the bridge was taken out. So was, this was before that flood. And I was walking and I stopped on this bridge. And there's no other way to tell the story except that the water, the stream was flowing under me and the wind was rustling through the leaves of the trees. And the breeze was surrounding my skin. Mm-hmm. And I was suffused with a knowing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I realized this is real, something is happening. It's big. Yeah. Everything must change. Yeah. And I literally ran home I remember I ran home and I started revising all my lesson plans I taught English 100 or English 22 first year and developmental composition at the time and like literally from that moment everything I taught and everything I did was focused on the environmental crisis wow
0: wow that's awesome thank you for sharing that piece of the story
1: some, pe- some people have said, you know, be careful when you tell that story because it's Hawaii and I'm not Hawaiian. <laughs> so I can't say, you know, that the land was speaking to me. I, I can't say that as a settler. Um, okay, so I, let, let me,
0: yeah, let, 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 uh, I appreciate the deep respect and I honor the deep desire. To not, uh, you know, um, appropriate or, or, you know, I get all that. I, I get it in spades. And there has only been one way to live genuinely sustainably ever in the history of our species. And that's to have a faithful relationship to the land. A, a, an I vow personal, respectful, honorable, and humble relationship to what we would call in Western language, the biosphere or the ecosphere. Yeah. And so you certainly uh, are, can say in this conversation series for sure that there was a communion experience for you uh, that changed your life. And that's in no way dishonoring of the indigenous traditions that are so grounded in Hawaii.
1: Yeah. It was also, it was really a direct, yes. you know, nobody told me no other human told yes. me it was a direct knowing and yes. that, is um is important and okay. then so from there i read um david abrams book spell of the sensuous
0: yep yep he's a dear um, friend
1: <laughs> it's amazing amazing book and so then from there i wanted to know more about this so i wanted to go back to graduate school I had a master's at the time. I thought, well, I'll study this because, of course, that's all I know is school, right? I have like 22 years of higher education, uh, which sometimes I now wish I could undo. And I see the value of, you know, being free of that. But um, nevertheless, that's, that's what I wanted. So um, at the University of Hawaii, there was no degree in environmental psychology, which is what I was very interested in. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. how do people learn this? Yeah. I just learned this, but w- how do young people learn this? And what mm-hmm. does it do to their sense of the future? That's the question that grabbed me and that still to this day uh, holds me. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to study environmental psychology, which didn't exist. So the closest I could get was educational psychology. Okay. So I would go all the way through the ed psych program, all this coursework. Oh, my God. I took like four upper graduate division statistics classes. They were, it was like hell for me. Um, all the coursework, everything I studied, I turned into a lesson plan or I turned into a talk. I mean, it was really great. It took me nine years, the whole wow. Ph.D., So I spent nine years in a graduate program, really trying to find a way to study this question of what does this knowledge do to young people and how does someone take this in Mm -hmm. and what is happening at the same time, I'm going through my own um, process of coming to the post doom um, outlook. So, uh, this is a, a great part of the story. So I come to the moment where I get to um, um, define my research project for my dissertation. I was really excited to do this research. I wanted to talk to adolescents about climate change and ask them what they thought was happening and how they felt about it and what they thought the university should do about it.
0: And what year was this roughly?
1: This was 2005 Yeah. So I'm a few years into a graduate program, having done the coursework. Yep. But my advisor at the time said to me, you can't do that. You can't study that for your dissertation because it would be much too difficult for you to first establish for your committee that climate change is real.
0: Oh, gosh. Right. Oh, wow. (laughs)
1: exactly right so I'm in shock I leave the office and I went to an office across the hall Um, another faculty member um, named Joanne Cooper qualitative researcher um, who I was taking a qualitative methods class with and um, Dr. Cooper said That's crazy. That's a fantastic topic. I'd love to be your dissertation advisor. I think that's a really important research project. Unfortunately, I can only be your advisor if you're in my program. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. I'll switch programs. (laughs) So I left Ed Psych to educational administration, which I'd never even heard of, frankly. I didn't even know there was such a thing. To be in higher ed and study Higher ed this is very weird. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a meta position for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I, I entered this meta program and had to take more coursework. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took me more years, which was fine. Um, mm-hmm. We get a tuition waiver because I work in the system. So the courses were free for me and mm-hmm. I just took my time. And I really stayed in that environment for a long time
0: yes.
1: um, until about 2009, I actually did the first interviews for what would become my dissertation study, which was called um, Students as Stakeholders in the Curriculum.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: Uh, So I talked with students and I also talked with faculty and I also talked with um, administrators. And I remember one group interview that I did with all the top administrators um, on one campus and the Vice Chancellor at the time, she said, you know, this is very interesting and we've never talked about this before. And I think there are still administration meetings where that statement would still be true. We've never talked about this before. It's a huge blind spot in higher education to have a mission, to have a vision, and to not have this be central is... Is, is terrifying, really. Yeah. The the resources and the energy and the intellect that we could be putting into not just trying to solve, but to preparing right. and to laying a foundation for what will come after the collapse. is yes. a huge blind spot. It's crazy. Yes, it is. It's like... Uh, <clears throat> Don't even think about it, that book. Right. And the way our mind has cognitive blind spots, it's like yep. that, but at an organizational level. Yes, exactly. Um, so I redid that study. Um, after I did my dissertation, uh, I know at least two people read it. Um, and it, it, it did influence things on the campus that I had studied. Um, motivated a few people there for sure. Definitely has changed. And then the second was um, this fellow Matthew Lynch um, became the director of sustainability for UH system. And he knew of my dissertation work and he called me up and that's how I kind of became like his right-hand man for uh, sustainability across the system. So with Matt, I was able to do basically that same study um, and listen to students across the university system. And we ended up calling that study the worry and hope study.
0: Oh, interesting. And,
1: and um, yeah, I actually just read the proofs of um, uh, an article where we're publishing, um, it should be out in December. Oh, okay. Um, and it's called Worry and Hope, what students know, think, feel, and do about sustainability. Wow. Right, so it's that same question. Yes. The same question. Um, And a lot of people have responded to this research. There's a particular pie chart in there that shows a a latent emotional atmosphere of fear, anger, sadness, shame, Hmm. which is very interesting emotion Mm -hmm. and hope. Mm -hmm. But these outweigh the hope.
0: Yes, of course.
1: And if you know anything about teaching and learning, how can you learn anything in that type of emotional climate? Exactly. So I really understand that climate anxiety, which is a big topic right now, climate anxiety comes from not talking about it.
0: Yes, exactly. Amen. One of my most significant mentors, uh, probably my most significant female mentor, Joanna Macy, has been saying things like that forever. And then this young woman that I interviewed as part of the posthum series that will be uh, edited and, and uploaded probably within the next week and a half, Britt Ray. Um, uh gen dread generation dread is a book she's working on but she has a blog but so so a young woman and a, a senior major mentor are coming to uh, virtually identical conclusions
1: so many amazing people in this work mm-hmm. it's like putting together a big puzzle mm-hmm. putting together a big puzzle and trying to mm, work work just work with my own mind and then this collective, understanding um it's fascinating it, it's hor- it's horrible and fascinating yes exactly, time. exactly. <laughs> um
0: so you mentioned there was one other thing one other aspect that you wanted to get into
1: so okay so after the worry and hope study i started another study that i'm currently engaged in which is the faculty study Teaching climate change in higher education, and one of the one of the amazing <clears throat> faculty that I interviewed, um, she shared about um, a, a personal struggle or crisis that that she had gone through, and whether maybe that had something to do with with taking on a deep understanding about the climate crisis, and. Um, that really I really thought about that so I'm looking at that in the data like what is it that that makes some people really able to understand this and some able to block it out or not see it right so I think it's important to share that during this time period 20 10 12 14 time, I also went through um, a personal crisis where my own life imploded. Mm-hmm. I had a soulmate relationship. Um, and he, I knew him a long time. It's a complicated relationship, but uh, it was very deep. And he had suffered a brain injury Mm. at a bicycle accident and a brain injury to the frontal cortex, Mm. causing him to lose executive function.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I said before that I had studied the brain, Mm -hmm. but I've studied the brain really up close and personal. Yes. And seen uh, when we lose this frontal cortex is a mess. Yes. So it's almost like we have a collective frontal cortex injury.
0: <laughs> wow. That's a fascinating metaphor. I love it.
1: Um, and so, well, so and,
0: and, and for those who aren't familiar with the brain science, uh, Connie and I did programs for about nine years on evolutionary psychology and brain science and, you know, all that thing. But, but a number of people watching or listening to this conversation won't necessarily know what that means to say, lose executive function. Could you just share a little bit about what that's like so that people have a better sense of what that, you know, I want people to fully appreciate your metaphor in terms of collectively that, but yeah. it helps to understand what happens personally as well. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I mean, I had been interested in this frontal cortex. So we've learned that it's not really mature until 25 or 26. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder if this has something to do with how adolescents might be understanding climate change. Mm -hmm. Like, If this is the area that uh, manages planning, execution of tasks, forward forward projections and planning, you know, what is this area of the brain like for a 20-year-old? And I, you know, I'm not a a neuroscientist, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of literature on that. And so for my beloved who suffered this injury, for him, it was an inability to get from A to C, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And I mean... And he was a, an amazing, just mythic person. He was, he had a degree in forestry and he was an artist. He made this amazing wood art. Um, he was just a very compelling, amazing person. You know, gorgeous and tall and talented mm-hmm. and you know, spoke like seven languages. Wow. And, and for him to lose the ability to reach his visions. He could see things that he wanted to do, uh, something like uh, going to a doctor's appointment. He could see where he needed to get, but to get there and all the things that it took, like getting up and brushing your teeth and getting dressed and eating breakfast and getting in the car and navigating all the Mm -hmm. way there, and parking the car mm-hmm. by the time he would get to something so simple that most people just don't even think about by the time you get there he's so exhausted and frustrated yes that the slightest little thing would just you know yes. cause him to to totally lose it yes so i used to be his brain i there was a way in which i was able to balance him and help him and we had like a a bulletin board system and a check-in system and he'd move post-it notes from here to there <clears throat> things like that this externalized cognition to help him execute tasks yes. and I mean this was a man with big big visions mm. big big visions that he never got to execute and um, he ended up committing suicide
0: yeah sure I can imagine
1: which is also an interesting part of the metaphor.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: So this took me into at least a year that I don't even remember. Yeah.
0: Was he able to, was he able to share with you that that's what, what he was going to do or did it just come as a surprise? Yeah.
1: Surprise. Yeah. Yeah. He left, um, he left these little altars around Mm -hmm. the house. Um, so, you know, it was, I knew how and why, Mm -hmm. and it, I knew how and why. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So So from there, my life really imploded. And I do think that there's something to how uh, there's, there's, you know, it's nested. There's a, there's a personal crisis Mm -hmm. and, you know, and people said things to me like, Oh, you have to burn down to the ashes and then it'll be like a Phoenix and your life will come back. And, you know, I just, all I did was cry for like, years yeah so I went I think it accelerated my ability to understand the climate crisis because I'd already been there mm-hmm
0: Yeah, it's not abstract for you.
1: So, <clears throat> in my journey, I don't know exactly uh, who, which article, or who wrote this, but you know, there's a comparison to the stages of grief mm-hmm. with um, understanding the climate, the planetary predicament. Yes, exactly. Getting to post-doom. Yes, exactly. Is like the stages of grief, mm-hmm. right? The shock, denial, mm-hmm. bargaining, anger, bargaining. Forget which A- one comes first. Yeah, I think anger comes
0: first, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: anger, bargaining, uh, and then this acceptance.
0: Well, sadness too. Sadness,
1: for, right, uh, sadness, yeah. and then you get to accept. Right, exactly. Acceptance. Okay, wait. So I'll just say those again. So there's these stages of grief, Mm -hmm. shock,
0: denial, (laughs) denial.
1: shock, denial, anger, bargaining, sadness. Mm And then you come to acceptance.
0: And, and sometimes we have to cycle back through that a few times in right. a different order. Right. Exactly. So
1: it matters to me with this post-doom conversation mm-hmm. that I, so it was actually, I think the first person who showed that to me was actually my therapist at the time. Hmm. So I did go to counseling when I was in my personal grief. Sure. And, and I remember her showing me this picture. It had a ribbon. It was like a ribbon that went like this and this was like maybe two years after the suicide and Mm -hmm. she said where where are you on this path and i pointed like you know somewhere down still in the in the bottom of the Mm -hmm. ribbon Mm -hmm. and she was like you're stuck there you're stuck you're not getting out Mm -hmm. and um i ended up taking an antidepressant for about two years Mm -hmm which was extremely helpful Mm -hmm. to get out. Yes. I couldn't get out. Mm -hmm. And I described it as this, this black hole feeling. My personal grief was like (sighs) getting sucked into a black hole. Yeah. And um, so coming out of that, being in what's called on that thing, acceptance, I feel better personally Mm -hmm. so i can feel the difference between being in that grief shock denial anger whatever and being like okay that's what happened i can tell the story to you today Mm -hmm. and only cry a tiny bit because i've gone through this exactly there is an acceptance Mm -hmm. um so i can relate that to understanding the planetary predicament exactly there is an acceptance of it and you get to the acceptance and it doesn't mean you know you're psyched about it or anything (laughs) it's terrible exactly but it's different from the grief
0: yes exactly i heard Catherine ingram in one of her talks uh i think it was called kindness in harsh times uh, where she Uh, talked about that that place of of really beyond acceptance almost finding the gift is the way Paul Traverka speaks about it Mm -hmm. but that 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 deep acceptance then allows her to be present to the news including including the catastrophic stuff but it doesn't land as daggers in the heart in the way that it did
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's
0: been my experience too yeah
1: it allows me to hold space for others. Yeah. And so that's really you know where my work is focused on now is um, <clears throat> helping faculty who are in a position of translating this information to the next generation, to young mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. How, how can I support them going through this process and, and having the information, does it need to take this long? Does, does, it, does it have to take 10 years to get there? Does it need to go that low? Yes, Do you have to lie on the floor for two years weeping to get here? Or is there some way to come to the understanding in, in a more gentle way? I don't know. Maybe that's what the post-doom conversations. Well, it's,
0: yeah, it's certainly what I was, what I am attempting to do in my three-part sort of uh, post-doom primer, my collapse and adaptation primer. Those three hour-long videos are my attempt to put together, you know, seven or eight years of of, of study and have it in a digestible enough form that it can facilitate somebody making that journey in a relatively gentle, relatively fast way, mm-hmm. um, but in their own way. But it's that, that's, that's my best attempt currently, uh, mm-hmm. my best offering along those lines are those three videos.
1: Mm-hmm. It's amazing um, offerings, what you've created mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, all the books that you've read out loud. What an interesting way to speak the words
0: and I get to re-listen to some of my favorite books three or four or five I mean I think I've re-listened to William Catton's Overshoot a dozen times over the course of the last five years or so Krista I want to ask you because you are just really a shining light in the sort of Guyanism world and uh Eric Asadorian uh and his whole Guyanism project who I, that I aligned with so deeply. And he, I had a post-Doom conversation with him, as I'm sure you know. Uh, anything you want to say about uh, him and that work and that context with respect to um, everything else we've been talking about?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I used to describe Eric as uh, the doomiest person that I knew. <laughs> um, he actually came out here to Hawaii. Um, I forget what year. And gave his talk is sustainability still possible yeah. um, and that's how i met eric and uh, he told people things like um, you wouldn't be able to have pets that pets were really unsustainable and that this made him very unpopular you know, there's <laughs> just things we don't want to think about what yeah. it really is going to mean and how soon it's going to mean those things and I still haven't quite put my finger on it. And I ask people, like, what are we talking here? You know, is it like Jim Bendel, imminent collapse, uh,
0: probable five catastrophe, years, possible five years, extinction, ten
1: years? Right. Uh, you know, I, I I don't quite understand that. I guess I live in this ten years space, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's still an open question in my mind. But anyway. Um, I, I met Eric a few times after that when he was still with Watch, mm-hmm. And I find it very interesting that someone who um, works for a think tank most of his adult life, what do you do after you work for a think tank? Well, you start a spiritual philosophy. Yes, exactly. You know, I don't think he calls it a religion. I think he calls it a spiritual philosophy. What do exactly. you do? You homeschool your kid and start a <laughs> spiritual philosophy. So um, I, I would mention that... Um, another important piece of, of my path has been, uh, the community in Topanga, California with Dina Metzger.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm hoping you were, I was hoping you were going to say, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Dina is a a really important teacher and mentor and friend. And, um, so the first time I called Dina I, I called her, I called her on the phone and I was weeping. I was weeping. And she said, why don't you just come? She said, the writer's intensive starts in something like five days. Why don't you come? I'm gonna make a space for you there. And I just, I just said, okay, okay, Nina, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I went to the writer's intensive and I ended up going to Topanga maybe five times in a year and participating with that community in what, what she calls dare, which is a Shona word for council Mm. um, that she's been holding there for 30 years and it involves healing work and it involves council, which is sharing stories Mm -hmm. without having an agenda or getting to a particular place, you know, um, thinking slowly mm-hmm. and speaking in story, mm-hmm. um, and that's been very important. And then, when Dina, did that?
0: When did that begin for you?
1: That was um, that was just like two years ago.
0: Okay, good. I've done
1: writer's intensive with Dina twice. Okay. And uh, the second time was virtual because of COVID. Right, of course. So I did it right here in this very spot, in this very valley. Um, and some of what I wrote about was that moment that I shared with you mm-hmm. um, and how it relates to the, the Mo'olelo or the story, the stories of this valley. Yeah. And there's a goddess, Kahala Opuna, mm-hmm. Um and so I did, I've done some, some real exploration of that Mo'olelo, which involves a settler mentality and the indigenous mindset. And this, yeah. um, this beautiful, radiant um, woman, Puna, is murdered. And the murderer is uh, her betrothed, Kauhi. Yeah. And like cow he is the colonizer mm. and he murders her mm. and he murders her again she comes back to life murders her again he Keeps trying to murder this indigenous spirit right so this last uh writer's intensive i wrote from the perspective of cow wow I
0: was,
1: yeah and um i didn't expect to talk about this at all no, i'm
0: glad you're going there though
1: <laughs> i wrote i wrote from the experience of Kauhi and his, um, his, uh, Mm. Like what if his regret, Mm. how could Kauhi feel regret in that Mm. story? And, uh, I actually wrote this story where Kauhi commits suicide. And, uh, several different ways he keeps committing suicide and he ends up um immolating himself and i think a lot about suicide um you know i have this personal experience and dreams and it gets in your head and you Mm -hmm. you, you, things you don't want to see you keep seeing them in your head Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um you know, young people are committing suicide. There's the highest suicidal ideation, which is when you can't stop thinking about committing suicide, like 12-year-olds.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Um, Hawaii, in particular, has one of the highest rates of teen suicide in the United States.
0: Oh, wow, I didn't know that.
1: So this is all related. Mm-hmm. This is an existential This is why it's called an existential crisis.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, So Dina, Dina's work, she calls uh, uh, extinction illness. She calls Mm. climate grief, she calls it extinction illness. She talks Mm. about extinction and she talks about reversing extinction. Um, How if we change our mind through what she, what has been identified to her as 19 ways to change our minds uh, how do we go about changing our own minds because when, when you're inside the Western right. hegemony that's what it means to be inside a hegemony is exactly. that you can't see your own mind you can't exactly. see your own blind spots uh, so that's another piece of the work that I do with Dina and mm-hmm. her community um, people that I've met, uh, through her community, uh, such as um, Stan Rushworth, mm-hmm. um, doing sweat lodge with Dina, with Stan, um, the land in Topanga, and the way Dina has, has mm, created the village sanctuary there. Um, so I, I try to live where I live in that type of relationship yes
0: yes amen that's fabulous uh
1: another of your questions that i think i'd like to mention and i I think we might be coming towards our time i have no idea how much we've been talking for a week or for 10 months (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: we've got some time i don't need to be uh uh at my daughter's for another half hour um so we're good but but yeah i I, we we try to keep these to roughly an hour that sort of thing
1: Yeah. yeah yeah um um uh, one of your questions um, was speaking to the coronavirus. Yes. Um, the pandemic. And I think that's very important to the context and the time that we're in, especially here in Hawaii. Yeah. So right now, of course, we lost 99.8% of of tourism, which was uh, driving the entire economy. Of course. And we knew that we needed to diversify the economy. We knew that tourism was was not good for the aina, for the land, for the oceans, for Waikiki, Mm -hmm. for the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, but we were addicted to it. Of course. So, of course, <laughs> that's, that's
0: the predicament exactly.
1: Um, so the coronavirus pandemic has created um, a, a spirit here that is called hulihia, and it is so exciting. Hulihia is like turning around. Wow, it's like, no, let's go that way instead, you know. And the pandemic is providing that energy. So it's very exciting right now. And we were just speaking about books. Mm-hmm. So a book literally just released two days ago um, was called Hulihia, The Value of Hawaii, Volume 3.
0: Wow. How do you and spell that?
1: Hulihia, H-U-L-I-H-I-A. Okay, great. No no accents or anything. Um, and this book is... it's open source, it's published free on ScholarSpace, it's digital, and it's like 25, 1500 word essays about how to hulihiya in every sector. So it starts with an essay by Chip Fletcher, kind of establishes, you know, here's where we're at, and um, talks about every different sector. So I'm, I'm so excited about this book and this holy here feels it i can feel it i can and where i'm getting to is this place it's i wouldn't call it optimism i would call it post doom yes exactly it lives somewhere between doom and hope i'm not hopeful or excited or happy in any way but mm-hmm but it's different from doom. So it's, it's post-doom, Michael. Exactly. I get it. So um, I remember when we were setting climate goals for 2020 or 2030, it's like, Oh, let's have renewable energy by 2020. No, it's 2030. No 2025. Like I remember feeling who cares because We're not going to, it's not going to happen.
0: That's exactly.
1: And like, I don't know when we were making all those goals, 10 to 10, 12, something. I call it the,
0: I call it the idolatry of human agency.
1: Right? Like, Oh, we'll, we'll just agree to keep it under two degrees Celsius. Like, um, (laughs) that means nothing. What happens when you set a goal, you set a target. And you make metrics, and then you don't get there. And you just told everybody that you made this big splash of what you were going to do, and then exactly. you failed. Yep. And then you're worse off than when you started. Exactly. In some ways. So this, this hulihia is different than that type of goal setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a different energy to it. Where does it go? What does it look like? I don't know, but I've also studied the maps um, and the checklists of uh, you know preppers. I've read prepper manuals and I've, <laughs> um, you know where to live, where to go, what to do. Aside from that six pack of beer on the beach, exactly. right? What and and what else?
0: I'm glad you cycled back <laughs> to that. That's great.
1: Um and yeah, i'm gonna stay in hawaii
0: yeah yes. i'm like
1: doubling down on hawaii
0: absolutely i totally honor that
1: it's it's scary mm-hmm. it's the most remote inhabited place on the planet <laughs> it is yes <laughs> um it's a giant military base it is uh we are reliant on container ships for 86% of our food. We are going to be increasingly in the path of hurricanes because Mm -hmm. of climate change. Mm -hmm. There's science that Chip Fletcher explains about how, why hurricanes have missed Hawaii mostly for the 20 years that I've lived here mm-hmm. uh, we've had a lot of close calls but aside from uh, hurricane Iniki uh, mostly they miss Hawaii and some people say it's because Hawaii has this you know rainbow <laughs> bubble over it and is like no <laughs> there's no rainbow bubble uh it's because of the gulf stream and mm-hmm. the tides and the temperature so we're gonna have more hurricanes that's scary mm-hmm. uh but there's year-round growing season, there's air, the, the water situation is, is scary um, in some places more than others, but these mm-hmm. mountains back here, they, they literally scrape the clouds, the mountain peaks scrape the yes. clouds and that makes rain, and that's amazing.
0: Yes, it is.
1: And there's... Aloha,
0: and it's real. Saying this is where I want to live, and if the universe, God, Gaia, reality, you know, whatever, uh, if this is where I die, this is where I die. This is this is this is my home. Um, I think is a profoundly important. So yeah, that that's where I am for the first time. I'm in Southeast Michigan. We just moved here a month ago, and we're living two blocks from granddaughter. And we're rooted for the first time in 20 years. Connie and I are now rooted in a place. And this is where we anticipate living, contributing as long as we can, and dying whenever that is.
1: Yeah. It, it really bothers me on a visceral level when people say, and a lot of people say this, they say, um, oh, if humans just die today, the planet will be fine. She'll heal herself. It's like, it's something about that really bothers me on a, on a visceral level. Humans have a role and a relationship with Gaia, with the planet, with the Aina. Mm-hmm. And some of that is the responsibility um, to do these things that you've described. And I think that's where you get to with post-doom. Exactly. And I think that's the best thing that a young person can have I is... Agree. What is my what is my gift? What is my uh, the word we would use here would be kuliana. What is my kuliana? my responsibility yes. and my, my honor really yes. to yes. contribute here. That's all there is. Yes. <laughs> and it could be a hundred thousand different things. Just pick one. Life has great meaning in this time.
0: For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.